You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 31st of October 2022 on Monocle 24. Brazil decides just to give Lula another lash at the top job. Russia flounces from the deal which allowed Ukrainian grain to ship out of the Black Sea. But for the moment, everyone seems to be ignoring them. And another controversy-plagued running of New Zealand's Bird of the Year competition. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Lynn O'Donnell and James Rogers will discuss all the day's big stories and we'll hear from Denmark ahead of tomorrow's general election. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I'm joined today by Lynn O'Donnell, columnist for Foreign Policy magazine, former AP and AFP bureau chief in Afghanistan, and James Rogers, associate professor of international journalism at City University of London and a special guest whose identity will become apparent very, very shortly. But first of all, hello to you all. Hi. Uh, And... Well, let's get first to that very special guest. Uh, We are talking first about Brazil, which has elected a new president. It's one of their old presidents, and he's not actually our special guest. Lula da Silva is somewhat busy, but Monocle's senior correspondent, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, is not. Um, Fernando, was this closer than you expected? It was, actually. I mean, I knew it was going to be a narrow difference between both of them, but it was very narrow. I mean, Lula got 50.9% of the vote, Bolsonaro 49.1%. They had a difference of about 2 million votes. That's not a lot for a country as big as Brazil. Uh, I mean... It was a convincing victory in the end for Lula. I mean, uh, remembering that Bolsonaro had all the kind of the political machine under him. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, he had uh, a lot of money spending, in fact, a lot of money in his campaign, much more than Lula. Uh, but still, you can see that it's very much a divided country. People are not joking when they say divided. Just look at the numbers. We have, of course, been talking about this election extensively as the campaign has proceeded. You were in uh, Brazil for some of it. And one thing we did keep coming back to was that in many respects, this is kind of the nightmare scenario. Um, A narrow win for Lula, conceivably so narrow that if Bolsonaro decided he wanted to make a thing of it, he might have the material. Is there any indication so far that Bolsonaro is going to make a thing of it? That's the big question because, you know, I've been checking the whole day. He hasn't conceded yet. I mean, there's a lot of reports in the press here and there saying that he probably, he will not say that it's fraud because the thing is he in the first round he managed to elect quite a very right-wing congress and senate so he can't really complain about the you know the voting system because that will go against him mm. in in one way or another uh, but you know his silence is scary and what we're seeing now uh, truck drivers across brazil they are cre- they are doing some protests some very impromptu protests in the streets so that's kind of being the kind of uh, reaction uh, but one thing 
you know, we don't know what's going to happen. But it's been very interesting to see some of Bolsonaro supporters, uh, including, you know, some senators and MPs, they are kind of conceding defeat. They said, you know, we worked hard with Bolsonaro, but now, you know, we live in a democracy. And that's quite interesting. Perhaps that could be a sign of what he will do. But as I said, he's an unpredictable man. We don't know. I mean, I looked literally five minutes ago. <laughs> uh, he hasn't conceded yet. He might be breaking news on the daily. Who knows? I mean, as you point out, um, Lula da Silva becomes president-elect again uh, of an obviously divided country. What kind of moves do you anticipate him making once he's sworn in? Well, it's going, you know, one thing that I think people are a bit wrong, I mean, Brazil didn't turn very much to the left because Lula, I mean, look at his vice president, Geraldo Alckmin. He's very much a centrist guy. He used to be in mm. a center-right party. Uh, so, you know, Lula actually got a lot of new allies from center-right parties. And, and he said, this is not going to be a workers' party government. Of course, they will be present. It's undeniable that, especially in questions like the environment, he was very clear about that. But it would be a very centrist uh, government. I, I don't see him turning to the left. There's not much space for that. I mean, even if you look at the Congress, I mean, of course, he does have some sort of presence there, but no way he does have a majority in there. He is very much a known quantity, of course, Lula. He served two terms as president. So on the basis of what we know about him, what do you expect? Well, liking or not, he's very good at, at working with other politicians. I mean, even in 2002 and 2006, I mean, to be honest, the Brazilian Congress was never very left-wing. I mean, of course, there's the problem of corruption because to govern Brazil, that's that's why corruption happens because you have to work with, at the moment, I believe we have 23 political parties, which is actually less uh, of 30 <laughs> political parties we had in the last election. But he, he does have this charisma. Uh, Unlike Dilma Rousseff, for example, uh, his successor, that was the problem, actually, that got her impeached. She she had a very bad relationship with Congress. And I think Lula is slightly better in that, in dealing with perhaps people that are, that are not necessarily on the same political terms as him. We will doubtless be coming back to this story in coming days for the moment, though. Fernando Augusto Pacheco, thank you for joining us. This is The Daily on Monocle 24. Um, still with me are Lynn O'Donnell and James Rogers. And before we plough on with the events of the day, we will pause for a rumination attached to our top item. As we have just been discussing, Lula joins that exclusive pantheon of politicians who have been voted back into a job they had held previously. And that even more rarefied coterie of those who spent some of the interregnum consuming prison gruel. All charges later annulled, etc. Um, Lynn, first of all, we have here in these islands in the last couple of weeks seen what appeared to be an abortive political comeback. It's only Monday and I can't pronounce two-syllable words. This week's going to be a wild ride. Abortive political comeback. Boris Johnson, former Prime Minister, scampering back from holiday rather more quickly than he used to during actual crises uh, to try and get his old job back and then not. Why didn't that comeback work? Boris Johnson? Mm. 
Boris Johnson. (laughs) (laughs) Is that one of those there's an answer in the question kind of things? Yeah, I'm I'm being facetious. I think the question really is why did it nearly work? Why was it even considered? And I think that it's the shallow talent pool of of modern politics um, and that he thought he had a chance probably speaks loads to his own... um, view of his Machiavellian abilities Mm. uh, to make the person who follows him uh, make him look good. I think that that was what he was was about. Uh, So it it didn't seem to me at any stage to be even a close-called thing, but um, there was a lot of argy-bargy in the media around it because he generates a headline. Um, But I wouldn't rule him out for futurely trying it again. Oh, no, I absolutely wouldn't rule it out at all, Um, which which does beg the question, James, when is a good time for a political comeback? Because in in some jurisdictions, the United States, for example, they kind of mitigate against Mm. it with their term limits. If you get to do two terms, certainly as president, that's your lot. You're done. Get off. Um, But... Obviously, we may well witness in the next couple of years an attempt by a one-term president to have another crack at it. Grover Cleveland succeeded in that enterprise once before. Um, Why is the time sometimes propitious for somebody to come back even when they were voted out last time? Uh, I think there's something probably something peculiar about the political circumstances in which we live at the moment, which is everything is so very unpredictable and most people are having a pretty rough time of it economically. Um, So I think, you know, the incumbent tends to take the blame for that and people may look at with, you know, a rather rosy-eyed view of what went before and think, well, maybe we'll give that another go. I mean, thinking of Boris Johnson, he might try it again. I mean, I think it was surprising and we never really know if he did have the sufficient support to have a serious candidacy. And I think, you know, a lot of sufficient numbers of his party obviously because of the way the system worked had turned against him really just a matter of weeks ago um, so that was probably not going to happen but I think that's probably what it is I think people are, are, you know, are looking for something new and are, and are willing to, to try things because they, they don't really trust politicians full stop so they think okay well we'll give them another go Lynn is the parliamentary system in particular perhaps susceptible especially to just absolute boneheaded persistence. I'm thinking uh, here, of course, of one of the most famous statements about political comebacks made by eventually a long-serving Prime Minister of our shared homeland, John Howard, who, after one of many, many, many setbacks, apparently terminal, he endured on his way to the top, uh, ruled out any such comeback, saying at this point it would be like Lazarus with a triple bypass. And yet he went on to win, I think, three elections? Three, mm. three consecutive elections. Um, so what's your question. (laughs) (laughs) Are we just at the mercy of those people who don't know when to quit? Or at the mercy of the backroom boys um, who uh, see vested interests as the the, um, impetus for pushing particular people who hold particular views and policies forward, which you could say was the case with John Howard. Uh, And James, just finally on this, is there anybody that out of genuine conviction or just for contribution to the general gaiety you would actually like to see make a comeback? Uh, I can't think of anyone I'm afraid I'd to know. I mean, <clears throat> my uh, speaking as a Brit, I've, we haven't had the greatest <laughs> selection of Prime Ministers over the last four or five terms in office, I don't think. Um, all of them will be likely to be remembered for mistakes they made rather than for achievements which they made.
You don't think David Cameron's worth an, an, another try then? Uh, personally, I don't. I, and like, I suspect <clears throat> that the majority of my compatriots feel yeah, that I, way I, too. I, I don't wish to suggest that there is any serious or even frivolous groundswell for such an idea. <laughs> Uh, well, let's move along and look at Russia, which it turns out may have been negotiating in bad faith. We're as shocked as you are. A few months back, Turkey forged one of the few diplomatic breakthroughs surrounding Russia's invasion of Ukraine by overseeing a deal which allowed Ukraine to ship grain out of its Black Sea ports. Russia has now suspended its participation in the deal, whining that Ukraine has launched a large-scale drone attack on its Black Sea fleet. As a consequence, worldwide commodities prices have spiked and as usual, this will disproportionately affect the countries which can least afford it. Um, James, you, you sit at this table as our, our designated Russia boffin, having reported from there for many years. Um, it's, it's a question that often strikes me uh, during Russia's attempts at diplomatic outreach. Why don't they worry more about looking petulant and silly? Well, I think it's interesting, Andrew, because I think you know, they, they do look petulant and silly from one point of view here. Um, but it's interesting, too, to note that grain shipments have actually been able to leave Ukraine today. At least 16 ships, yes. Yeah, so there has been a spike. I mean, Reuters reporting a 6% increase in wheat prices. Not at all surprising there, of course. But on that point of um, diplomacy and not looking silly, um, TASS News Agency has been reporting what would not be a, a normally a big news item, but... Just talking about the uh, the Russian Deputy Foreign Minister, uh, Mikhail Bogdanov, who has responsibility for relations with Africa, has <coughs> been reassuring um, African ambassadors in Moscow. He also says that Russian ambassadors in African countries are working very hard to assure them of support. He specifically mentions foodstuffs uh, and fertiliser. So, again, not a massive news item in and of itself, but an attempt, I think, by the Russian Foreign Ministry to show that they are, um, they don't want to seem, you know, they need um, African nations' support in some ways. They don't want to uh, uh, increase the already very difficult food supply situation that exists in those countries, or they don't want to be seen to be contributing to that. So they're also trying this diplomacy with those certain parts of the world who, whose support they rely upon, those parts of the world, in short, who haven't necessarily lined up behind the West in their, in their um, unequivocal condemnation of the war in Ukraine. But just to follow that up, James, doesn't that make Russia look even sillier in that they have announced... We're out. We will no longer participate in this deal. The ships leave anyway. Um, and Russia is apparently running around frantically behind the scenes telling everybody we're not going to stop them. Well, I think perhaps they're trying to appear magnanimous and saying, you know, we think we're going to do this and we're, we're, going to, we're out of this. But actually, you know, we do understand that people have very serious food supply concerns. So we're such nice guys. We're actually going to let some of these ships leave. But... With the implicit threat that when they don't feel like doing that anymore, then they can reimpose the blockade that characterised the first few months of the war. So what is the correct response so far, at least, Lynn? Because we, do, we don't see any sign as yet of Russia reimposing that blockade. For the moment, is the smart move by everybody else just not to bite? Because what matters, is it not, is that the ships are still moving? Well, what really matters is the price of the grain. Mm. Um, uh, you know, the Chicago Board of Trade uh, futures prices for wheat and corn and soybeans have gone up, as James said, and that um, flows into everything, everything that we eat. And um, what we really do need to consider is the cost to charities that distribute food to people who have no food is also going to go up and they have finite amounts of money and so they will be able to buy 
less grain. So less food will be available to those people who need it and can't purchase it for themselves. So I think that that's what matters. Uh, James, also in Ukraine today, we are seeing further demonstrations of... uh I think what we can reasonably call the Russian way of war, a renewed salvo of strikes against power and water infrastructure, which is a fairly gruesome thing to do to civilians at the best of times, still more so as a Ukrainian winter is approaching. Um, At this point, does it strike you that Russia actually has any discernible strategy or again, is this just lashing out? I personally don't think Russia's had a strategy since about the first week of the war. The strategy was that this would be over within days and that Ukraine would be, they would either, uh, the government would either come around to Russia's way of thinking or more likely be replaced by a Russia-friendly one. And since then, I think why we've seen, you know, different um, day marches on the, in the military sphere and also in the, in the diplomatic sphere, I, don't, I think they're you know, making up as they go along to a large extent because this was not the way that things were supposed to unfold. Um, the other thing is, I mean, it's remarkable to sort of get the sense of resistance um, uh, under the, the population in Kiev. I mean, I, I've exchanged emails with people there occasionally, mm. um, and uh, you know they're sort of pretty forthright and say when I the last it seems to have been Mondays a great start to the week. You know, days are getting shorter and you get an air raid as well. But um, a lot of them are saying, you know, we're used to it. We're in the shelters, and I'm, you know, sorry if I can't reply for a while because you know the internet's down. But they, people do seem to be getting on with it, as far as one can tell. You know, I read one report recently suggesting that the people who really weren't cut out for this had left, and many mm-hmm. refugees did, of course, leave in the first few weeks of the war. Those that are there have a determination to survive this and, and to see Russia not prevail. Well, indeed, it's it's one of the many things, Lynn, that Russia has miscalculated. If there wasn't a sort of coherent and cohesive Ukrainian national identity eight months ago, uh, there would very much appear to be one now. But I, I want to put to you a variation on, on the same question I asked James. Do we understand at this point, and the fact that I don't think anyone really does know, does make uh, any sort of negotiations or any sort of resolution at all incredibly difficult. Do we know what Russia actually still wants? If we assume that Plan A, which was obviously waltz into Kiev in 72 hours, flat install, puppet government, hold big parade, that's not going to happen. But did they have a Plan B or is there one now? Um, what what did um, and what does Russian victory look like? Mm. Yeah, um, I, I haven't had an idea since um, learning that the Russian troops who were advancing on Kiev in um, February carried with them their dress uniforms for victory <laughs> parades. And I think once that went out the window and he was, you know, essentially press-ganging young Russians into, um, into service and now apparently using the Wagner Group to uh, try and convince... For instance, Afghanistan's former special forces to sign up for Ukraine. Um, I think that um, I think he's winging it. I, I, I think that it's a lost cause, and I, I wonder very much how soon it will be before the people around him uh, start. And James will know this much better than I um, start to become so exasperated that um, removal of Putin becomes um, something that is seriously considered, and then a reality. And I do know people who are experts in this area, which I'm, I'm not, who say that they'll be surprised if he's still in power by Christmas. Uh, Christmas is coming. Um, it might be too soon, but at least people are talking in that way because victory doesn't have a shape. Actually, I'll just put 
that exact question to you, James. And and the the weird thing is uh, that criminology now is no more exact a science than it was for 40, 50 years ago yeah. when, when people who worked in roles like yours would frantically pore every May Day over the photographs of the reviewing stand to see who was standing three mm. feet closer to but the we general may be secretary. Back there, given how hard it is to travel to the country now, actually. I mean, but, but genuinely, what do you think the chances are that, um, you know, somebody makes a move on Putin at any point, never mind before Christmas? Uh, I because, think, because you wouldn't you wouldn't want to get that wrong the first time, no, would you? No, and I, I, I personally don't see that in the short term, I have to say. I mean, I, I felt at the beginning of the war after the first week, and I said this in print around that time, that I think this probably would be the end of him, that it might be four or five years down the line, and I more or less hold to that now. Um, for the reason that, you know, I, I think, you know, Lynn raised a very good question, what does a victory look like? Well, victory probably looks like certainly hanging on to Crimea, which was annexed eight years ago and has, you know, now become not as secure as it was, and probably probably annexing part of the east of the country and saying, OK, we've um, secured ourselves against the advance of the West, which is trying to destroy Russia in the Kremlin's telling. But that solves nothing. And we look at a frozen conflict, even if there's not an active military war of the extent that we've seen over the last nine months. Um, so I think it's I don't think this ends well for President Putin, but I think he's probably got quite a long time to go. He's still got the security forces domestically on his side. He's still I'm sure there are mumblings in the elite, but I don't think you're, you're right. I don't know wants to be the first person who tries that. James, and then thank you for the moment. We will have more from you both later in the show. Now, in Sweden, just over a month ago, citizens voted in an election that swept the far right into a power-sharing agreement. Tomorrow, Sweden's neighbour Denmark will go to the polls. Denmark's dependency, the Faroe Islands, votes today, and Greenland and mainland Denmark cast their votes in the morning. This is an election brought forward seven months following an ultimatum from the ruling Social Democrats' coalition partners. Few expect a Swedish style far-right takeover here, though, and as Zander Brett explains, the balance of power could instead fall to two brand-new political parties. In countries built on coalition governments, ballot papers are often rather long, and there are well over 10 options in Denmark's election tomorrow. This election's ballot paper indeed will be even more crowded than usual. In June, former Prime Minister Lars Luka Rasmussen, who served as head of a Venstre or Conservative-led government from 2009 to 2011, again from 2015 to 2019, founded a brand new party, the Moderates. Then, just a couple of weeks later, former Minister for Immigration and Integration Inga Storberg, nicknamed Iron Inga for her tough stance on immigration, founded another new party, a new right-wing party. I asked Ben Hamilton, editor of the Copenhagen Post, about these new parties and the impact they could have tomorrow. Firstly, about Luca Rasmussen's. It's almost exactly the same season three of Bourne. He's founded a centrist party and a picture is emerging of who he would support. The other party are Denmark's Democraterum, and they've lost a little bit of support. They had over 10%. But then they started revealing a few of their policies and, and then maybe they didn't sit so well with voters. There are a few parties that nobody's mentioning who are performing well in the polls, both on the left and on the right. But definitely the emergence of these two new parties and, and Lars's party in particular impact this election. Indeed, the role Luka Rasmussen now has as a potential kingmaker makes a coalition between serving and former prime ministers very possible. The vents to breakaways in the moderates with the traditional left-wing sparring partners of theirs, the Social Democrats. But in Denmark's vast coalition web, such partnerships are not, indeed, uncommon. Ben Hamilton again. 
Danish politics is all about compromise. So having parties as, as close to the centre as possible is absolutely what a Danish majority should look like. And so often the party with the power, like Social Democrats, they say, oh, God, we, we can't pander to the, to the left wings. We're going to reach across and do a deal with venturing conservative. That has become a norm in the last five or six years. In Sweden, just over the Orison Bridge a month or so ago, the far right got their first taste of power. They're now propping up a government led by Ulf Christensen's moderate party. Policies there are veering so far to the right, some fear they could even push Sweden out of the Schengen Agreement. But though Denmark certainly had its fair share of Euroscepticism and anti-immigration rhetoric over the years, in 2019 the old far right, if you like, the Danish People's Party got well under 10% of the vote. And after eyeing in as party took many of their members this time around, it keeps just seats in the 179-seat parliament. I've been covering Danish elections since 2001. Amelie Kessler is an editor at Denmark's Politiken newspaper. And this election is just totally up in the air. We don't know how it's going to end. Mette Frederiksen has quite a big chance of staying on, I would say. And the Social Democrats are looking pretty good in the opinion polls. We have a system where we have had the same four old parties since, you know, the beginning of the 19th century. The Conservatives and the Venstre, the Radical Left and then the Social Democrats. We, we haven't seen this idea of new parties. So it seems like if people are unhappy with the political positions in their parties, they just form a new one. This old D- Danish People's Party is a party who has really had a lot of power in 10, 15 years. And right now, some of the polls are showing that they will not even make it into the parliament. Their front leader, Pia Kersko, who has been calling the shots on the right for years, was in a power struggle with her political lieutenant, you could say, and the former leader stepped down. So there has been a power struggle and Inger Stoiberg just came at the right time, it looks like, and several of the MPs from the Danish People Party have shifted sides, so they are now joining forces with Inger Stoiberg. And the question is, are there room for two parties? And it doesn't really look like it. The voters are going from the Danish People's Party to this new party. She can see of infiltration. The current Prime Minister, Meta Fredriksson, who's been in the post since the previous election in 2019, will remain in power. She was widely praised for locking down early in the coronavirus pandemic. But mishandling of the potential danger of minks in that pandemic drew criticism. A report this summer absolved Fredrickson of deliberate misleading of the public. But the centre-left Radical Venstre party threatened to bring a motion of no confidence against her if she didn't call an early election. So it was on the 5th of October, seven months ahead of schedule, she announced this Halloween vote. In the middle of an energy, financial and security crisis, now may seem strange to call an election. That is, however, what a majority of parliament would like. Will there be scary surprises for the Prime Minister in store tomorrow as the votes are counted? More likely it will be down to the long grind of coalition negotiations. We await talks to follow. Xander Brett, thank you. You are listening to The Daily. Still with me are Lynn O'Donnell and James Rogers. And let's now look at Afghanistan and matters arising. The first incarnation of the Taliban circa the late 1990s were not known for their friendliness to journalists. Even after a week-long wait in Peshawar for a visa to get in, you had to spend a couple of days in Kabul applying for another one to get out, in between being lectured by various functionaries about what questions you couldn't ask. The returned Taliban are not notably 
more outgoing, prompting once again the question of how one can best report from a place where you can't do any reporting. Um, Lynn, you have had reasonably recent first-hand experience of the unkeenness on a free press of Taliban 2.0. Yes, talk about political comebacks, as we were. Yes, I I did. I went in um, mid-July back to Kabul to do some reporting on the first anniversary, um, which was the 15th of August, uh, because I left on the 15th of August uh, last year. And I I went by the book. I got all the right visas, made all the right registrations, went to see the right people. Um, The right people threatened to have me killed. And then I was detained by the security agency. I was threatened with jail if I didn't confess my crime as they were called. I was told that I had to make um, confessions on video and on Twitter. And two particular stories that I had written, one well before the fall of Kabul about forced marriages in places where the Taliban had already taken over, effectively sex slavery, and one earlier this year about the way LGBTQ people are treated and um, uh, what they fear. Um, So both to do with sex uh, were, were... particularly um, offensive to the Taliban. And um, I think I was the first foreign uh, correspondent to be detained and interrogated and forced to make uh, false confessions. And I left soon afterwards and was then branded a spy who came in masquerading as a journalist and went into hiding to be hunted down and forced from the country, which was all lies. But since my experience, a few other people have been treated in pretty much the same way. My friend um, Anas Malik, who's a Pakistani working for Indian TV, was branded a spy, uh, incarcerated for a few days. But what happens when foreign correspondents like me are treated in that way is that the people who are working with us are detained for days. Mm. My driver, who I've known for my, since my days with AP, was kept for three days, beaten up, deprived of, of sleep, his car stolen from him, his phone taken and contacted tax gone through. Um, but whatever happens to us, what happens to local journalists has been much, much worse. They have been killed, detained, arbitrarily incarcerated, forced to leave the country. It's, um, it's a pretty dire situation. I can only hope that at the time you took it as the compliment it was, that everybody reacted to those tweets by instantly going, well, that can't be Lynn. Oh, gosh, it was amazing. <laughs> it was really quite... A... But I told them, I said, look, guys, I'll, I'll do this, but hand on heart in all sincerity, this is going to make you look silly. And they had a bit of a debate between themselves about the meaning of the word silly and decided they, they wouldn't and went ahead and made me do it anyway and then looked silly. Well, stupid, violent, impunitive, you know, all of, the, all of the rest that goes with it. But their power comes from their violence. And really, that was the big lesson that I brought away from that, that violence is the only credibility and legitimacy, source of legitimacy that they have. James, you also have fairly extensive experience of reporting from places, um, Russia and Gaza, not least among them, where the authorities are not necessarily enthusiastic about journalists going about the place doing journalism. What kind of tips did you acquire about how to get around that? What, what, do, you, what do you do? You've still got to talk to people. You still have to file a story. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, the big distinction was whether it was somewhere 
somewhere I was living longer term or whether it was somewhere I was visiting. And in the mm. latter case, I was much more willing to take risks. When I was in Gaza, there was a couple of stories that I decided that probably weren't safe to do because I needed to be there. One which um, the Sunday Times subsequently did, which is about smuggling tunnels. Mm. And I, because I used regularly to have to cross between uh, the Gaza Strip and Israel and I would get interrogated by Israeli, I assume they were... Um, some form of intelligence or security services, um, not wearing uniforms all the time. I got to know some of them by sight and got to chat to them, but I, there were some things, Andrew, I didn't want to know. Mm. Were, and I didn't want to know where the entrances to the tunnels were, because. but if I'd just been going on a short assignment, I would probably have done it. But I think, you know, you still have got to do the story. And you, you mentioned Russia. I, I remember one absurd story, which I was there in 2007, I think it was, 2006, 2007, uh, with uh, a British minister who was on a trip to, um, you know, uh, abandoned Russian nuclear naval dockyards in the north of the country. Uh, and it was a scheme to give funding to make these... Um, make them safe basically paid for by the Norway was a big contributor as you imagine it was not very far away and was very worried about it but they wouldn't let us film some of the submarines <coughs> in the dockyard I quite understand why from their point of view it looked terrible but they thought it was humiliating but at the same time you know so in the end actually what we did was we just I just did a piece to camera and said we're not allowed to show you this and we did two or three seconds of black which on television obviously is a pretty clear sign that something's missing but, you know, that was all right in the end. But you have to proceed with extreme caution. I mean, Lynn's experience sounds utterly terrifying. Uh, but the thing is, that thing you mentioned, Lynn, about it ultimately making them look silly uh, is usually what happens, and yet people do it anyway. And we're seeing some extremely silly things emanating from Qatar ahead of the World Cup later this month. Now, Qatar... in bidding to host the World Cup was volunteering to make itself the focus of global attention. It was volunteering to be overrun by thousands of journalists from all over the world. And yet it is laying down restrictions up to and, in, well, including but not limited to, I should say, uh, banning people from or banning journalists from filming in residential properties, private businesses and industrial zones or government educational health and religious buildings, which doesn't leave an awful lot, football stadiums presumably, but I'm sure you, you, you have to get special permission to film inside those and you're probably only allowed film um, in specific directions. Why do governments do that though? Because they, one, it looks daft as you were suggesting and two, at least to good journalists, that's that's interpreted as a challenge. You know, I don't think that um, governments um, think about anything but their own constituencies, um, really. Um, for instance, the UN Women's Conference in, I don't know, what, 2000 or something. I was based in China for a long time and covered that. Mm. Um, the, the Chinese government wanted to hold that, host that, for the prestige that it brought internationally, but made sure that any domestic coverage was uh, very tightly controlled because the constituency of the Chinese Communist Party is the Chinese population. And so taxi drivers, I was resident in China at the time, taxi drivers were driving around with sheets in their boots so that just in case the women who come to visit this and are delegates to this conference take off their clothes and they're naked because that's what foreign women do. I've got a sheet. I can cover them up. I mean, it was just crazy, the stuff that was that, you know, people expected and had been told to expect from these thousands and thousands of foreign women who were going to descend on Beijing. But the success of it 
um, as told by the Chinese media, was what was important. Lynn O'Donnell and James Rogers, we will be coming back to you both before the end of the show, but... Well, finally on today's show, the 2022 iteration of New Zealand's annual Bird of the Year contest has been run and won, or perhaps flown and won. The contest, best thought of as a somewhat inferior version of Australia's annual Bird of the Year contest, frequently occasions controversy. Last year it was won by a bat, which though it does have wings, is not a bird in the same way that having four legs does not make a sofa an aardvark, and this year the favourite was disqualified. And I'm joined with more on this by Monocle 24's New Zealand desk chief, David Stevens. Um, David, we will deal with the controversies in depth shortly, but first of all, what won? Well, I, I, I'm, I'm glad you asked. I mean, it would be a, it'd be a slow it would be item weird, It would be weird not to mention it. <laughs> um, but I wanted, to, I wanted to teach you how to pronounce oh. said winner. Uh, now, actually, I, to, to give you some credit... Uh, Live on air, which will which will help. Uh, your pronunciation of Te Reo Māori has been very good. So, uh, well, thank you. And, and I'm going to give you uh, a way in here. So, first, think of the vegetable, the pea. The pea, as I often okay, do. Yeah. Yep. And now think you're slowing down your horse twice. Whoa, whoa. whoa. Now oh. put that together, and we have the piwowo. Fantastic. That's okay. the winner. That's the, that's the big winner this year in uh, a, a year that was dubbed the Underbird Year. The idea oh, being that uh, that the lesser recognised birds might get a uh, leg up or a wing up in this year's competition. Is this the reason why it was shamelessly fixed? Well, this is the thing, and you mentioned the controversy, and they love to kind of court this controversy because mm. it gets them headlines, doesn't it? But uh, no, this year they were really trying to push that there are lots of birds you might not have heard of, this one being one of the certified underbirds, and the reason that perhaps it did so well is that this year one of your top five it was a single transferable vote system <laughs> uh, one of your top five had to be a certified underbird so perhaps where this bird got so many of its votes maybe it was just the consensus choice in the underbird category i mean it, it is the nature of transferable vote that everybody's second or third favorite tends to be the one that gets up rather than you know, something which arouses particular passions. Exactly. And so this was actually second uh, when all the first choice votes were counted and uh, second to the Korora, which is a penguin. And uh, with once the once the second choices were counted, uh, the Piwowo took it out. It's um, to, to let you know a little bit about this bird, it's very small. Please. It keeps getting likened to the size of a particular biscuit from New Zealand, a mallow puff. It, right, this is this is no help no, to anybody really outside help, New it? Zealand. Um, it's about 20 grams. Okay, that so it's, for anyone it's, on metric. it is small. It is small. It's uh, it's it's only really seen in the Southern Alps and the kind of highlands of the of the South Island. This this I knew would uh, anger you. It doesn't really like to fly so well, much. Well, see, I, I was about to ask because it is a question you would only ask in the context of a New Zealand Bird of the Year contest. The apparently ridiculous sounding question, can the damn thing actually fly? And apparently so it can't. It can. It can fly. It is a flying bird, but it likes to just hop about on the rocks. Its, it's English translation is, a, is an alpine rock wren. Um, and I think maybe it's part of the wren species to kind of jump around a bit. But so that, it's, it's lazy? 
basically. You could say that, I, I suppose. Um, the controversies you've, you've spoken on a little bit, um, this guy won with the a, with a, with a single transferable vote system. Some people mm-hmm. don't like that. They want a first-past-the-post system. I'm, I'm all for the single transferable. I think it's a more fair result. But let's not let's not get into that too much. Last year, as you said, a bat's not a bird. I agree with you there. <laughs> uh, I'm glad they they nip that in the bud quickly. And this year, the Kakapo, which is which is a big favourite, um, was not allowed in the competition. It's won twice, and there was a worry that it was going to kind of skew the vote all the way over there again. Now, this the, is a very fat parrot which cannot fly. It's it's all it's always called it the the world's fattest parrot, which I think is a weird judgment descriptor rather than saying the largest or heaviest <laughs> parrot is to always call it the fattest parrot the the birds are often also backed by political candidates so maybe this is a this is a newer thing it hasn't been in, in previous years um, but just to let you know where the kind of political spectrum lay the the leader of the opposition uh, Christopher Luxon backed the rye bill this is mm-hmm. one of the only birds in the world apparently to have an asymmetrical beak so um, I don't know what that says about the opposition. Maybe they're I, I trying am, to go. I am D- David. As an Australian, I am rising magnificently above the inbreeding jokes over here. Uh, Chloe Swarbrick, a Green Party MP, backed the Korora, which ended up in, in second place. And Jacinda Ardern. Now she wouldn't endorse a bird, which is interesting. Um, she has kind of at times not t- taken a side on uh, certain issues, but she has, when questioned said that the uh, black petrel is her favourite because it's the most bogan of the birds. <laughs> That's the reason. So, interesting there. <clears throat> uh, I don't even know if we've got time to go about translating that South Seas euphemism for our, our, our global visitors, but uh, for our global listeners, but they can look it up. Um, we do actually have, in order to paint pictures with sound here a bit, an audio file of what the official Kiwi Bird of the Year sounds like. That that's understated, verging on the self-effacing. Um, I do want to ask, what is this likely to mean uh, for the Piwowo, though? Because it, it is, as you were suggesting, a fairly obscure, even hipster uh, creature. Is it is its habitat now going to get trampled to mulch by people trying to see one? Yeah, it's 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 huge now. There's there's uh, photographers outside its its door. <laughs> no, it's it's so it, it's as I say, it's it's only kind of seen. I mean, most people won't have ever seen one of these birds. It's very rare to see them there in the the as I say, the South Island Highlands in the alpine environment. But the idea behind this bird getting this recognition and the hope behind this bird getting recognition is actually, it's a bit of a climate change vote. It mm. really is, because this this is a bird that, you know, if climate change continues as it is, its its habitat will get smaller, it'll introduce more pests and or more rodents and things that can actually take out a bird that chooses not to fly, even though it can, uh, <laughs> when it's on the ground. So it's, it, it really is a vote. Of, this whole competition is about awareness for birds and the kind of the species maybe we don't know, but also the species that are endangered in New Zealand. And so this is meant to bring some awareness to the fact that there are these amazing rare species up in the mountains in New Zealand, and actually we should be trying to look after them. Uh, just finally, throwing ahead to next year, do you want do you want to like lay down an early tip for 2023's Bird of the Year? Here's the thing, I don't think they can keep the kākāpō out two years uh, in a row, and so I think it'll be back and it'll probably be looking to settle some scores, so I think that'll get a big surge in votes. Um, I'm always behind the piwakawaka, the fantail, mm-hmm. so that'll be getting my vote again next year, we'll see. David Stevens, thanks for joining us.
And just before we leave on today's Daily, I, I want to bring in both our guests on this, this vital topic. Um, James, I should have looked up whether or not there is, in fact, a British Bird of the Year competition. I didn't. If there was, and maybe there is, what would you vote for? My goodness, what a question. I was just thinking that I wish I lived in a country that had a calm enough political system to <laughs> bother itself with something like this. I suppose, Andrew, not particularly imaginative, or but because uh, I see them near my house, sometimes I'd go for a robin, particularly as winter approaches. <laughs> I, I am very fond of the robin myself, mm. but they are they are quite the passive aggressive little weirdo. I, I I get robins in my garden, and they do do a lot of just standing there, just sort of looking at me as if I need to explain why I'm there. I think they're just being friendly. I don't no, think they're trying to stare you down. There's, or, there's, no, there's something quite there's something it's... quite querulous and parking inspectory about them. <laughs> I, I always feel like I'm, they're waiting for me to show them some papers. <laughs> <laughs> to which I can only end up finding myself replying, it's my garden. <laughs> um, Lynn, in the Australian Bird of the Year, uh, which is a thing, have, have you ever voted before and if so, for whom? Or I what? haven't voted. Um, I'm... Um, I- I was thrilled to hear that piece from um, New Zealand, a country where the nickname for the people is uh, Kiwi, a flightless extinct bird. Um, it's not extinct. It's still a thing. The Kiwi? Yeah. Oh, goodness. I thought it was extinct. I thought it had been eaten by cats out of it, out of. No, I, th- I, I think it's still a thing. Mm. I don't know. Close run thing. Um, second, third votes going to... Um, the kookaburra in the long run from the gang gang and the um, and the galah. <laughs> uh, I'm a big fan of the kookaburra myself, much less so when it's on your windowsill after you've had a night of it. It's quite a din. Um, if anybody listening to this has not heard the call of the kookaburra, I commend you to YouTube uh, as soon as you finish listening to this, but don't do it in public. That is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Lynn O'Donnell and James Rogers. Today's Halloween show, and yes, we're doing the amusing names, was produced by Tom Spiders Webb and researched by Lillian Forceps and Emily Quick Sands. Our sound engineer was Scarer Nickel. I'm Andrew Murderer here in London. The Monocle Daily is back at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening.